that we should keep it concise uh, just for the purpose of God re-jump-starting the realm of prayer in our own lives. So this, this is a vital, critical, important series of messages for any believer, but for the season where God has us as a church. Uh, I believe all of us need to be hearing this in a very practical way that's going to find some real-life expression in our midst. And we call this series The Prayer Catalyst. Part of that's from my nerdy engineering background that desperately seeks to come up with illustrations that come from my education. But for those of you who don't appreciate those deep uh, issues, at least you know that there's, a, there's something out there called a catalyst. Right? There's things in life that make other things happen. And whether it is chemical reaction, as we've said before, that makes hydrogen and oxygen have something injected into it to where they don't remain hydrogen and oxygen, then they become water. And there's a change that takes place in the very elements that make up that molecule. Well, that's true in the realm of the Spirit. That's true in the realm of our lives. There are things that are, if you will, just sitting in the room of our lives. They're just, they're just there that God has intended that prayer would be injected into those things. It could be issues that you're walking through. It could be personal dynamics about who you are and things that you're wrestling with. It could be struggles that you're having. It could be people that are in your life. It could be those that are around you who are not saved. Many things God has chosen that into those things would be injected prayer. And prayer would then act as a catalyst. God would use it in a way that would bring about a change. And we said that one of the greatest things a prayer is ever going to do, it's not limited to this by any means, but prayer changes us. Prayer changes us, and that that could be a much bigger message than it was a few weeks ago, but prayer changes us. Prayer changes the way we pray. When we change and the way we pray changes, then I think we actually graduate into the realm of what the Bible is calling prayer. I think sometimes we're using that term in a, in a sloppy sense and we're thinking, oh, you know, I've, I've prayed, you know, I've prayed. Well, I'm not quite sure that's always true. And if we haven't really done the, the biblical thing called prayer, then prayer can become very disappointing and we can become very unmotivated to pray. And there's a reality, as we said a few weeks ago, prayer is one of the hardest things a Christian will ever do. I think it's because of the most important thing that Christians will ever do is to pray. And certainly there's going to be difficulty in that which God has called most important. You know, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention before I got into the message about our, our own experience and our own habits when it comes to prayer. There are certain prayer-killing elements that creep into our lives that the way we think and the way we go about doing prayer sometimes, these things kill prayer. They kill our pursuit of prayer. One of them we've already talked about. It's this, this idea about God's management of the universe that is very clearly biblical, God's sovereign activity. Uh, we have put it into a category that the Bible doesn't describe it the way we've described it. And we've almost made the universe on autopilot. And so therefore, whatever's going to be tomorrow will be tomorrow, whether you and I participate or not. Uh, that's just, it's just bad theology. You know, th- this touches things like prayer. It touches the Great Commission. You know, why go evangelize? Why go tell anybody at all about Christ? I mean, whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. God's sovereign. God's managing things. God's going to make sure His purposes get accomplished. 
But yet it's God who tells us to go to the ends of the earth and to bring the gospel. God's going to do things in our lives tomorrow. He's got an agenda. He's got a plan. Yet it's God who's saying, yet I will be asked of for these things in your life. That's God. And if there's mystery in that, it just means that, that I'm, I'm not smart enough to figure God out. But I'm just called to obey and walk in obedience. You know, one of the other things that will kill your prayer life is your own, your own personal lack of experience in praying and the lack of answered prayer in your life. Right? I mean, you pray and something doesn't happen. You pray again and something doesn't happen. Built into that is discouragement that affects whether you want to pray again. Right? I mean, has that been your experience? So that there's another realm here of, well, then why pray? It doesn't seem to do anything anyway. Okay, let me just say this categorically. Um, our experience must never, never be the determining factor as to whether or not we believe this is telling the truth. God has made promises that you and I just haven't caught up with yet. God has said things that are true that maybe something about my life and my experience doesn't line up with this. But it's not true based on whether I've experienced it or not. Do you know there's lots of people today who run around don't believe in the gift of healing because they prayed for somebody three times they didn't get healed and they don't believe God heals now. God doesn't do that anymore. Okay, well, maybe God did it in the Bible way back then, but I don't think God does that anymore. Well, you know, I, I've never spoken in tongues, so therefore I don't believe in the gift of tongues, people will say. But listen, just because my personal experience may not be up to what the Bible says doesn't mean that we downgrade the Bible. This is, this is a huge problem in the church today. The church stops believing in things that it should be pressing to believe because personal experience doesn't afford us the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. You know, thousands got saved on the day of Pentecost when the gospel was preached. Do you believe thousands can get saved? Well, I've never seen it. So you don't believe it because you've never seen it. See, we, we must never do that to the Bible. We should never impose our limited experience on the Bible. The Bible's always calling us beyond ourselves. And, you know, at some point, we weren't saved. Our experience of the nearness of God and of God's grace and of His forgiveness and His cleansing from sin, we knew nothing of that. Hopefully we don't take and impose that on the Bible and say, well, I don't know anything of that, therefore God doesn't forgive. God doesn't cleanse. God doesn't make whole. God doesn't do that. God doesn't give new life because I've never experienced it. But yet we get saved and we begin to impose these limitations upon God. And we can do that in prayer because our experience in prayer maybe hasn't been as deep as it should be. It might be helpful for us to be honest, and, and we'd have to be honest with what we've heard so far in the last couple of weeks, to say as to whether or not what we call prayer is what the Bible calls prayer. You know, do you pray? Yeah, oh man, I pray. I pray. Remember, I started this series with a Gallup poll saying that more people are going to pray in the next week than drive a car and go to work or have sex or whatever else they're going to do. More people are going to pray. Really? Really pray? How long do you pray? Remember the questions? Uh, five minutes, maybe seven. Okay, listen, I'm not saying, and I'm going to hammer on the five to seven minute thing several times today, so just be prepared for that. And what I'm not trying to say is there's no such thing as praying for five to seven minutes. But what I am trying to say is if that's the only thing that you call prayer, 
that I have to say you don't know what prayer is. And what you've done so far isn't yet praying. Right? I mean, it's almost like, well, Keith, do you exercise? Well, you know, I've got new shoes and, uh, and a running, running shirt and shorts. and uh, You know, personally, how I feel about exercise, you know, I've, I've tried that. And then, you know, it just really doesn't work. It just doesn't do anything for me. You know, I mean, I've tried, really. Really. Well, tell me what trying looks like. I'm, I don't know. I bought the shoes and I'm at the shirt. I mean, and I, I went to the gym, you know. Well, how many times did you go to the gym? Oh, I don't know. Three, four times? I ran two, three times with, you know, my daughter. She loves to run. Yeah. Um, Keith, you don't know anything about exercise then. You're not even in the room with exercise yet. Your idea of exercise is sitting on a shelf somewhere. Don't, don't say you've exercised. Just say you've flirted with the concept of exercising, right? Any of you guys who have really exercised, you know I couldn't begin to know what I'm talking about, right? You know that there's an experience that you've had when you have wrestled and sweat and toil and you've, you know, taken your body to task and all of a sudden you begin to feel the benefits of it, right? It begins to be motivating to you. It's hard, but you begin to feel the, the added energy level and you, and you begin to feel differently in your body I and mean, you see the benefit of it. But see, you got there when you got way down the road in exercise, you know, living, and this is, you know, what I just described to you would be an accurate description of my exercise. And it starts and stops on a regular basis, you know. So it's kind of like, you know, that was several months ago, and then a couple of months later, it'll look just like that again, you know, two or three times, great, okay. And then it'll go away, and then two or three times, and then great, and it'll go away. And see, to, to me, that's what prayer looks like for a whole bunch of us. Climb into the prayer closet, pray five to seven minutes, maybe yesterday, but didn't do it today. And then tomorrow, and then five to seven minutes, and then you know, a week later, and five to seven minutes, and then three days in a row, five to seven minutes, and and then we're trying to say, okay, so uh, Keith, I don't get what, what's the big deal about prayer? Well, it might be because whatever it is that you're calling prayer isn't prayer. <laughs> of course, it's unsatisfying. Look at this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, I once thought in my ignorance that most people said their prayers, and many people prayed. I love the way he makes that distinction, right? Said their prayers and prayed. I have lived to think differently. I have come to the conclusion that the great majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. I know this sounds very shocking and will startle many, but I am satisfied that prayer is just one of those things which is thought a matter of course, and like many matters of course, is shamefully neglected. It is everybody's business. And as is often happens in such cases, it is a business carried on by very few. It is one of those private transactions between God and our souls, which no eye sees, and therefore one which there is very, every temptation to pass over and leave undone. Listen, sadly, I think he's right. And concerningly, I'm not sure enough of us are bothered by that. I'm not sure that we're really, really concerned. As I said last week, you know, we got this Christianity where the wires are unplugged, the power source is not connected, study and prayer are grossly neglected, and yet we're trying to live the Christian life. We're trying to do some really challenging things, like evangelism, yet we can't seem to get the courage for it. Well, that's because courage takes power. 
I wonder why that doesn't work in my life. Or I don't even know if I could speak up in a covenant group meeting. You know, that'd be a who? That'd be a major move of God. Well, really, it wouldn't be, but okay. Well, get plugged. Get some power going on. How about forgiving people who have sinned against you? How about being able to move on from huge sins that occurred in our past and somebody sinned against us in a way that 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 sin has been shaping us for years and God wants us to go free. Free from those things. See, there can be some big things in Christianity that, that take power to pull them off. And yet we're living this Christian life without power. Listen, there's no power in the Christian life when there's not study and prayer. So if we don't fix that... We can preach messages until the cows come home. And ain't nothing going to change. We're going to struggle and struggle and struggle. And Christianity becomes fighting to keep your mouth above the waterline. Listen, Christianity is not just a fight for survival. Now, sometimes it is that. But it's not just that. Christianity is the advancement of the kingdom of God for the glory of God. That's how it came to us. It didn't come into your life because somebody was struggling to survive. It came into your life because the gospel was thriving coming from that person. And it touched the shoreline of your life. And that's how it's supposed to go forth from your life as well. Turn back with me to James chapter 5. Let's go back to our text here. James informs us in this passage that in every circumstance, prayer is to be a feature. Whether we are suffering or whether we're rejoicing, whether we're sick... Right? I love that he picks moments in which we probably wouldn't be all that motivated to pray. But yet, James is saying, in those moments, prayer is the feature. Now, why? James, why the big deal about prayer? Why, into every circumstance, should not only we be praying, but we should be getting others to pray for us as well? Why? Well, verse 16, right in the middle, he says, this is why. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is effectual. Some of your Bibles will say it brings about an effect. It is a catalyst. It touches things and makes them to change. So why pray? Because prayer changes things. And then he goes on and gives this example. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently, right? He didn't just pray. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Then he prayed Again, let's go to this scene here and see what that looked like. First Kings, turn back in the Old Testament, the story that James is referring to. First Kings, sort of right in the middle of the historical books in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 18. It's been three and a half years and there's been no rain. Being from southeast Louisiana, we have no idea what that looks like. But it was ugly, and there was the smell of death all around, and it was a desperate, desperate day to be trying to grow anything, live life. So finally the day comes where Elijah now is going to pray. He's going to pray for rain. Remember, God's used Elijah in an amazing way. God had intended that 
when the conditions of his people became idolatrous, that God would shut the, the spigot off. It wouldn't rain. But God waited for a man to pray before he did that. And now God's going to turn the water back on and he's going to wait for a man to pray again before he does that. Now remember, James just told, all James said was that Elijah prayed and it rained. Right, so use a familiar term here. Let's go to the location where Elijah is going to pray. Look in 1 Kings 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Ahab is the evil king who has led God's people into idolatry. And Elijah's been sparring with Ahab back and forth here. And so he's kind of rubbing some stuff in Ahab's face. Elijah said, Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. I don't know what he heard. Nobody else was hearing anything. Elijah probably by faith knew it's time. God's going to bring this to an end. Right? There wasn't any rain anywhere yet. There wasn't even a cloud in the sky. But he heard it in the spirit. He heard it in his heart. He knew it was time to pray for this. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times, seven times. All right, I love the the fact that the Bible lets us in on the posture of Elijah. He's gone away. He's got by himself. He didn't pray a quick little five-minute prayer in his chariot ride over to the bottom of the hill. Right? I mean, he had time to do that, right? Let me just hoist uh, hoist up a quick one to God. I'm going to be in the car anyway. I'm going to pray on the way over. And God's going to send rain, right? Now, there's something that Elijah knew. I'm going to need to get alone with God. I'm going to need to get away. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the top of this mountain. And, and when he gets to the top of the mountain, nothing casual is going on. He's got his head buried between his knees. This posture of intensity. Remember, because the Bible describes Elijah as a man who prayed fervently. And these things happen. So he's not a casual prayer. There's some intensity here. If you'll allow me to say it this way, this is real prayer. This isn't Gallup poll prayer. This is real prayer. And he is putting on a clinic for us. He went up, looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, Gehazi's servant comes back and says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now, now you know... That tells you a little bit of how severe this drought has been, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, would you be rejoicing? I mean, living around here? I see a little bitty cloud rising from the sea. Woo! It must have been about brass. The heavens were brass. Nothing up in the sky. And he said, go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So here comes the rain. But what I want us to pay attention to is Elijah praying. Now, I find something rather rather curious here. Elijah has been directed by God. This is God's will. It was God's will to shut the rain off, and it was God's will to bring the rain again. So we know this is what God wants. 
So curious information for us. Here's a man who feels the need to tell and pray to God and ask him to do what he knows God wants to be done. Now, do you traffic with me on how important that is? Because you know how many of us wake up every day assuming that, well, if God wants it to be done, it'll be done. It'll take care of itself. It's got that autopilot thing going on. Well, hello, if God wants it to be done, then it'll be done. Well, God wanted both of these things to be done. That's what motivated Elijah to pray for them. That's what motivated Daniel. That's what motivated a lot of the uh, examples we looked at last week. Knowing God wants something is what should motivate us to crawl into our prayer closet. And not just casually, though. It's not just going and say, listen, God, I know you're already up to this. I'm good for it. Go for it. This will be great. And gets in his chariot and goes on his way. Now, interesting, he bows his head and he prays and he prays. And he prays and looks and he prays and he 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 looks. And finally, he sees something that he's looking for. This tells me a lot about the deficiency of my prayer life. If I just crawl in the closet and mention it before God, I check it off and go on. I think, well, I've done my thing. Not Elijah. Elijah crawls in his prayer closet and doesn't leave until he owns it. See, I think this is what the Puritans were talking about when they said, pray until you pray. He prayed. He, didn't, he hadn't prayed yet <laughs> at number one or number three or number five. He had prayed when he got to number seven, and he knew. He knew something. This is it. God is doing it. Now, isn't it interesting to you that he had to pray seven times I mean, isn't it enough? Okay, I can track with you. God wanted to shut the rain off, then he wanted to turn it back on, and he wanted a man to enter into that and stand before him as an intercessor because he looks, and he looks for those who would stand in the gap and make intercession. Okay, he found a guy, he stands in the gap, and then God requires him to stand there seven times and pray. Does that strike you as curious? Now, I think for most of us, it strikes us as discouraging. Because we crawl into the prayer closet and we pray once, we pray twice, we pray three times, maybe four if we're serious. And aren't you ready to quit now? Aren't you ready just to assume this isn't God's will? Uh, This must not be what God wants. Or prayer doesn't work. I'll just leave it to God to do whatever he's going to do. But Elijah doesn't do that. He prays until he arrives at what it is he's praying for. Now, what I want us to see here, because this, this really is an example of a chain of events throughout Scripture that God has done this over and over again. This is nothing new. Right, and I'm going to race through these examples here. I'm not going to spend time in many of them. Abraham would be an example of God having done exactly the same thing. Remember, Abraham receives this incredible promise from God when he's 75 years old. You're going to have a son, Abraham. You're going to have an heir. Right Now, He's 75 years old. He doesn't have an heir. How many of y'all think that Abraham's been praying about this? Fair to assume, right? Big deal in those times to, to have a son or not have a son, to have an heir in your life. That's a big deal. So we'd be foolish to think, oh, let's just pick the story up already in progress. And when God invades Abraham's space, he's going to start praying for the first time. I don't think so. I think Abraham's been desiring and desiring and desiring this. God makes a promise to him. Now, that just all the more wakes this thing up. And now he begins to pray all the more. 
And he asks and asks and asks. He knows God wants to do it. And he's asking and asking and asking. Do you know it's going to be 25 years until he has a son? Abraham is going to pray for a promise that God made clear. He's going to do it. And he's going to have to wait and pray for 25 years before God brings it to fruition. I don't know if I want to wait that long. I've always been curious. Look at, I'll just look at a couple of these with you. Moses goes up on the mountain to interact with God and receive the law and the covenant. Exodus 24, if you're really quick with your Bible, you can turn there. I'll be gone in just a second, though. Exodus 24, 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Right? Wait is a good word for prayer. It's all over the Bible. There's something about waiting with God that is a part of prayer. Come up on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And you skip down to verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on, the, on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Right? Stop right there. Moses has been praying, directed by God to pray. He's been up on the mountain waiting on God. Nothing happens for seven days. Now, does that strike you as curious? What, was God busy? Did he, did he have other appointments? So, you know, did, did he show up kind of like uh, frazzled and, oh, Moses, I'm so sorry. Man, we had an emergency on the other side of heaven and uh, traffic was unbelievable. You know, why is Moses having to wait seven days before God even interacts with him? I don't know. <laughs> I just can tell you, God did that. Not because he couldn't have avoided it, but because he chose that for Moses, you need to sit still and wait on me for seven days before you hear a thing from me. Welcome to prayer. Look in verse 18. Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you read the next several chapters in Exodus, you're going to find out what it was that God had to say to Moses on the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights. And then at the end of that time, Moses is going to come walking down the mountain with some tablets that have been engraved by the stone, by the hands of God on stone. Now, something's going to be going on at the foot of the mountain during those 40 days, right? There's a party going on down there. Now, the question is, why did God take 40 days and 40 nights with Moses on the mountain. Did it take God that long to say what Moses came down with? He's carrying it in his hands. 40 days? Is God a slow writer? No spell check? Why did this take for so long? Now, I don't know all the answers to some of these things. I could just tell you, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard that when your prayer turns into something that's not instant grits, that somehow you miss God and you can't pray anymore. It may be that you're just entering into the realm of prayer after seven days and God decides to say something to you. It may be that 40 days later, you're just now getting what you came for. 
Now, I don't know why God does some of these things, but I can tell you one thing that God was doing. God was exposing the hearts of the people at the foot of the mountain. Because if God had taken 40 minutes, which I think is about how long it could have taken, if God had taken 40 minutes, what would not have been discovered was the idolatry that was in the hearts of every one of those people at the foot of that mountain. And God said, you know, I'm, I'm doing more than just writing a note to you today. I'm doing something in the lives of these people. And it's going to take 40 days for that to mature and begin to come into fruition. Right? There's other things going on sometimes. And I don't, I don't have time to unpack that, that thought. What about Hannah? If you've read the Bible, there's a, a woman named Hannah who yearly, the Bible says, and it, it says it in a worn out way, year after year, Hannah went with her husband to Shiloh to make offering. And she was barren. She hadn't had any children. Again, a, a huge issue in that day. And year after year, she would come. And then 1 Samuel chapter 1 records Hannah praying at Shiloh. Now, again, track with me. Year after year, does anybody believe this is the first time Hannah's praying for a child? She's barren. i got to believe she's been praying and praying and praying. She's been praying year after year for this issue in her life. And it's intense prayer as well. I mean, she's so intense that when she's praying, Eli, the priest, sees her pray and thinks she's drunk, thinks she's talking to herself. I don't know if she's arguing. What, what, this, what does this look like that he sees her doing? And he comes over to her and tells her, you need to get your life together, woman. Take your drunken... No, no, I'm not. I'm praying. She begins to pour her heart out and explains to Eli what's going on. And Eli blesses her and, and she becomes pregnant and has a child. Why the delay? Why didn't God just give it to her when she asked at first? Why these years? Why year after year after year of what looks like unanswered prayer, which, by the way, is not unanswered prayer? I pray and God doesn't answer my prayers. Oh, no, no. God had every intention of answering Hannah's prayer in the time in which he had set for it to be answered. And what's amazing in this story is, Here's a woman who longed for a child year after year after year. What does she do when she gets the child? She turns around and gives the boy away. She has a child, and after three years, he gets weaned. She brings him back to that very same place where she prayed, and she gives that boy to Eli the priest and says, My son will serve God all of his days. Now, (laughs) I'm just curious, moms, how easy would that be for you to do? How easy would it have been for you to do if you had longed for it your whole life and you finally got a son? Well, apparently something was going on in her heart all those years while she was praying that perhaps had she gotten that son in year number one when she first prayed, she'd have never given him up. Something's happened in her to where supernaturally a mother is willing to give up her son. If you read the Bible, at this point in Israel's history, they are in bad shape. And Samuel is a prophet who is going to bring a revolution to Israel. So he needed to come and he needed to be released into God's service. Delay. But yet God was doing something. All right, Daniel. I'm not going to take time to read all these. Daniel chapter 10. You go find Daniel who's pouring out his heart in prayer. 
And this angel shows up and he's, he's been three weeks. He's been fasting and praying for three weeks. It almost looks like and sounds like he's, he's almost set up this camp, which wouldn't be unfamiliar. Go up to a mountain, get alone, get in a place where you can just seek God. And it's been three weeks. He's been fasting. He's been praying. He's down by this river. And all of a sudden, this angelic being shows up and says, Daniel, I've come. I've come in response to your prayers. From the first prayer, I've been on my way. It took me 21 days to get here because a principality, a spiritual force opposed me. Boom. Immediately, something opens up to me about prayer in that. That there are forces of things going on that I don't, I don't see them. I don't know what's happening in the heavenly realm. But God's answer was coming after day one. Good thing Daniel decided that three days of prayer wasn't enough. Good thing that Daniel didn't just say, well, look, I've got my five to seven minute thing going on. I'm somewhere. I'm going. I got to hurry. I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere else. And God, you're going to if you don't show up in five to seven minutes, I'm not going to be here. No, he, he prayed and fasted for 21 days. I mean, this is all over scripture. Nehemiah gets a revelation. Jerusalem is in ruins and it needs to be rebuilt. And he begins to pray in Nehemiah chapter 1. And he says, God, give me favor. Give me favor before the king. Bless me. And he prays this way in the fall. And the king doesn't release him to go back to Jerusalem until the spring. Which was a miracle that God even that arranged that, that he would be able to go. But months and months of praying and asking God to come and do this. And listen, I could... I could we could get drowned in this. The Syrophoenician woman. Do you remember the woman who comes pleading to Jesus? Pleading for her child to, to have a need met in, in her life. And she's begging Jesus and, and she gets rebuffed by the disciples. She gets told by Jesus it's not going to answer her prayer. Three times in one story this woman is told, go away. You will not get what you came for. Guess what? At the end of the exchange, she gets exactly what she came for. Now, how how many of us are ready to pray that way? How many of us are ready to face Jesus and have him say no and come back and say, oh, but I'm not done yet, Lord. (laughs) That needs to change. This is all over the scripture. Why did did it take Jesus 40 days? 40 days in the wilderness of prayer and fasting. Why didn't it take him 40 minutes? Why 40 days of preparation before he steps into the ministry? I don't know why. Why does it take Paul three times of what looks like severe request before God concerning some thorn in the flesh, some issue in his life, that he pleads before God three times? And finally, after the third time, God gives a response. And the response is, I'm, I'm not taking that away, Paul. Do you understand? All over the Bible, there is a realm in prayer that involves delay and waiting on God. And persevering. Right, I put in your outline there, we must not remain comfortable with a view that portrays our prayer lives as being exempt from these dynamics. As though we'll never have to ask multiple times for something like the Syrophoenician woman. Or there won't be days or months or even years of continual coming before God breaks into those moments with his purpose. Listen, these examples, they, they don't necessarily tell us all why it is that there's delay, but, but they do this for us. They tell us that delay and persevering are normal. You with me? Delay and persevering in prayer is normal. 
expect it when you enter into the realm of prayer. J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom wrote a book called Praying. They say, once again, we see the wisdom and goodness of God answering sustained faithful prayer at the strategic moment and in the way that gives that answer maximum significance in the larger divine plan. Wesley Duell, he says, prevailing may involve God's most perfect time. To obtain the highest kingdom results, God may need to delay your answer. Included in this timing may be special blessing for you. God may see that it is best for your spiritual growth and eternal reward for you to prevail at some length before the answer reaches you. Take some time to read that quote carefully. Because that tells me that prayer, as what God has created and what God calls prayer, is not simply about obtaining the answer. Isn't that what we've turned prayer into? See, I call prayer fruitful. I call prayer beneficial. I call my prayer life good if it's producing the things that I'm praying about at the rate in which I'd like to see them happen. But what if prayer in God's hands is much bigger than that? What if prayer is supposed to be going to work on me and how I pray, on my faith, on on my perspective on the importance of that issue, on how God gets into that moment and tells me, I've been praying about this, but the real issue is over here, Keith. This is really what you need to be concerned about for my kingdom in this matter. And my prayer begins to shift. And that takes time. What if God's doing all those things? Plus a bunch of other things in other categories that I'm not taking into account. Well, if that's all what prayer is, well, then there's many reasons, many good reasons as to why delay and making me wait might be very, very important. Now, what does the Bible say about prayer and perseverance? It would be helpful for us, again, just to remember, let's, not, let's be careful not to label convenient five to seven minute prayer in the same category with effectual fervent prayer. Right? We learned that last week. Charles Spurgeon loves his quick thoughts that kind of cut to the chase. He who prays without fervency does not pray at all. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Just wiped out my prayer life. Today, I want to look at the issue not only of just, just the, you know, I think fervency and effectual fervent praying can be episodic. You know, it can be what I do in the prayer closet last night. It can be that moment when I crawl in there with God and I begin to, to talk with God and pray and intercede over these issues. That can be in a moment. But then persevering in prayer isn't a moment. It's a season. Days. Months. Years of praying. So this is a much bigger element on the calendar. Put this in your outline. It says, many of us never go far in prayer because we've never connected prayer to perseverance the way the Bible does. When you read the Bible on prayer and perseverance, you you find them kind of like two sides of the same coin. They're very related. Apparently, when God sees prayer, he sees perseverance. Look in Luke chapter 11 with me. Luke 11, very familiar passage on prayer. But I just want you to see the context and the way in which this is constructed by God's leading of Luke. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus 
was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I'm always curious about what what were they watching from a distance? What did Jesus' prayer times look like, sound like, that they got so curious that they were kind of, hey, teach us to do that. Right now, I don't know what your prayer life looks like, looks like, sounds like, but would anybody be curious? <laughs> would anybody go, hey, teach me to do that? Or would they just kind of say, what were you doing? <laughs> Apparently, Jesus is praying in such a way that they're, they're, the disciples are aroused in their curiosity. It's like, I, I want to know how to do that. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let me just say this about this prayer. This will be very helpful for you in developing your own prayer life. And we're putting together some helpful tools for you to do that. Uh, When Jesus responded to their request, what he did not do was give them uh, words to recite. If you grew up like I did, you can pray this prayer forwards and backwards, reciting it. I could pray this prayer growing up while thinking about whether or not I have to cut the grass later on that day uh, and other things that would be going on in my life. It just began to be meaningless repetition. Well, in all honesty, Jesus wasn't giving them words exactly to pray. He was giving them a way to pray. He was giving them, if you will, a model to use in prayer. So if you, this is a great model to use. There's many models you can use in Scripture. Um, we'll give you some helpful resources on that. The Psalms are a great place to, to use the Psalms as a place of, of, of prayer. But here the Son of God gives us things to pray about. Right? And I will often use this as the prayer model out of which I will have my time of intercession with God. And you just, you just start with these concepts. And quite honestly, I will eat up most of my time and never get past the first line. Father. How long could you actually take to pray about the issues that the God of the universe is inviting you to call him Father? How much grace is packed in that invitation? How much of the work of God has taken an offensive sinner like me and set him as a family member, as the object of God's blessing and kindness in my... See, you begin to just let this ruminate in your heart and you're going to be praying and praying and praying and you may not even get past the word father and then if you do you graduate into the holiness of his name (laughs) holy is your name and you begin to think on the holiness of god and on what was done in the word of god revealed that people did on behalf of the greatness of god how daniel prayed about the greatness of God's name and the destruction that was in Jerusalem and the jealousy that was in his heart when he began to say, God, do these things of restoration not because of us, not because we deserve it. God, we're sinful. We should be ashamed. But it's your name that's being profaned. It was the holiness of God's name that provoked uh, Moses to pray to preserve the people of Israel. Remember? He said, God, don't wipe them all out. Because the Egyptians will hear it and it will be your name that they're going to say, what did, what did this God do? He brought them out in the wilderness to destroy them all. God, it's, you, it's the impression about who you are that I'm concerned about. 
And you begin to pray about the things that are going on in your life with a jealousy for the holiness of God's name to take place in this person's life, in that need, in your own walk with God. Right? This is a model for you to pray out of. This is very helpful because if you don't have substance to your prayer life, you're never going to have a prayer life. Oh, you'll have a quick one, actually. You'll have a five to seven minute one. But if you're going to ever pray beyond that, it's going to be because there's substance in what you pray. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus gives them substance. And then look what he immediately does next. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his perseverance, because the dude won't go away, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Right? What kind of seeking and asking and knocking are we talking about here? I mean, he just set up. He didn't just come right out and say, hey, ask, and God will do it for you. Just ask. No, he set up a model that said, annoy God. Come and come and come and come and come and come again. And ask and ask and knock until that sound drives God crazy, if that's possible. For everyone who asks, receives. Now, then, context, everyone who asks this way receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent and he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him now god will hear god will answer, and those who ask and seek and knock will receive. Now, did you hold on to all the examples that we just went through a moment ago? It could be 25 years. It could be 40 days, 21 days. And you understand, this verse is true, and Jesus made sure you were aware that the context for it is as though obtaining it is going to be difficult and casually asking one time and going home will not obtain what it is that you came for. Did you get that from that parable? But he says it again in Luke chapter 18. Similar story. He told them a parable in verse 1 to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I love the honesty of the Bible because losing heart in prayer is very common. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This is Jesus talking about how we're supposed to pray. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? See, faith keeps coming. Elijah, right? Seven times. Because he knew. He had heard in his heart the abundance of rain. And he was going to pray until he saw it come from the sky. Faith keeps coming. Packer and Nystrom say, Did Jesus tell these stories to give us an image of God, our Heavenly Father, as a reluctant donor of things we badly need? No. Jesus showed in many other settings that God the Father is loving and generous and righteous and faithful and wants to give good gifts to his children. But Jesus told these stories to encourage us always to pray and not to lose heart. Persistent, insistent petitioning, according to our Lord Jesus, is most certainly appropriate when the pressure is on. But why is this if God is truly our loving Heavenly Father and truly wants to give us good gifts, right? You've asked that, right? God, I've prayed about this. Why aren't you doing this, God? The one point of the story is just referred to is that we should pray insistently and persistently about crucial needs, not because God will not meet them unless we do, but as if he would not. That's a very helpful clarifier. You'll find many times in your life God chooses by grace to do something that you maybe haven't hardly even asked anything about. So we don't want to get the wrong mentality about prayer, but God clearly is saying, Jesus clearly is saying, is when you pray, pray as if, as if you won't get this until you knock and knock and knock and seek and seek and ask and ask. Pray as if that's the way it works. Now, clearly, that is what Jesus says. Now, I share all this with us today because I don't want us to be caught off guard. I'm going to put in your outline. Don't be caught off guard. Know this from the start. Prayer that is effectual, fervent, and persevering will not be easy and will be in constant need of repair and refreshing. If prayer is the way in which we just described it, it ain't the easiest thing you're going to do tomorrow, is it? If this is what prayer is, you know, the five to seven minute thing, I can, I can, I can do that. My arms tied behind my back, probably doing something else while I'm doing it. But to effectually, fervently pray and persevere in that pattern, that is not going to be easy. And you're going to need to be refreshed and strengthened for the task over and over and over again. And, and if you're not aware of that, you're going to grow discouraged and your prayer life will be very short-lived. You'll quit. You'll give up on it. Now, we need series like this on a regular basis. You need to be reading and studying prayer on a regular basis because you're going to get to a place where you just get worn out and you need fresh insight. I remember when I was growing up, my dad built a camp, a fishing camp, 10 miles out in the swamp. Go and get there by boat. And after he had built it, sometime right after that, uh, an oil company moved out. And we didn't own the land, so we didn't get any of the oil rights. But an oil company found oil maybe 100 yards, 70 yards away from the camp. And so they put up this big, huge oil you know, barge. They floated it down, put it out in front of the camp there, and they started drilling. And my brother and I just were amazed. We just watched for hours. 
Now, what was interesting, you know, is you know they're going for the oil. They know the oil's down there. They're going for the oil. And they put pipe in, and there's a guy way up there. You know, if you've ever seen an oil rig, they, they screw it in. The next one down, they shove it down, and they get another one over there. And they, they keep doing that over and over and over again. Thousands and thousands of feet of pipe are being stuffed down on the ground. Now, what was interesting, though, was when they would take it all out. And they would do that a lot. They would take it all out. And you'd think, okay. <laughs> When they take it all out, it's going to blow black oil everywhere. They're taking it out because they found oil. It's going to spew all over the place. No, no, they take it out and then they put it all back in again. And then they take it out and they'd put it all back in again, over and over and over again. Now, eventually, we got to go on the uh, the little platform thing over there and, and meet some folks over there. Very nice, and my brother and I were so curious. And of course, they showed us the drill bit. That this drill bit odd-shaped thing at the end of the pipe. It's being shoved down in the ground. It's turning down, and it's actually got diamond, pieces of diamond that are in the drill bit. And they shove this thing down in the ground. Well, eventually, guess what happens when that thing is turned through enough hard ground and rock? It becomes dull. And you've got to take all that pipe out, change the drill bit, and put it all back in and go for it again. I thought, hmm, how... How disappointing for those guys if nobody told them that. <laughs> right. Put it all in, put it all in, put it all in. All right, now take it all out. What? <laughs> why? There's no oil yet. We're going for the oil. Well, why are we taking it out then? Just take it out. Huh? You know, they needed to know. Because that bit's going to get worn out. Listen, if you're really praying... Jesus told them these parables so that they would not lose heart because he knew when you get about praying, you're going to encounter discouragement. You're going to be tempted to quit. You're not going to enter into prayer this way. At some point, your prayer life is going to become dull and it's going to need to be reinvigorated. Listen, that's where many of us are right now. We're needing to be reinvigorated in prayer. We need a fresh vision for prayer. This church needs a fresh vision for prayer. And the last thing I want to encourage us on, which you know we can find many application points for this, but I, I want to appeal to you for the sake of the kingdom of God in our midst, for the sake of the future God has for us as a church, for all the things that God's called us to do together to advance His kingdom. I want to appeal to you, every one of us, to develop a biblical prayer life and to intercede and support the ministry of God here in this place in a biblical way, in the way in which we pray for the ministries that go on. Uh, let, me, let me give you a story here to close with. There's a guy that I've been recently reading about. I've loved his biography. I sought to, to gain insights on prayer by reading from this individual because of some things that I had heard about how he understood prayer. And I wanted to get his angle of insights on prayer for my own benefit. His name was James Fraser. Uh, he was born in the late 1800s as an Englishman. He was apparently an incredible musician and had before him uh, opportunities in, in the realm of music. Uh, he was also an engineer, which also caught my attention. And he walked away from all that to pursue a call to missions in China, became a part of the China Inland Mission and ministered in an area that was a rather obscure area of China to a tri- group of tribesmen called the Lisu, uh, kind of on the border of China and Burma. And this is just a little bio sketch on him before I read a quote from him. It says, Mr. Fraser 
was greatly used of God through prayer and loving labor to turn multitudes of Lesu from their slavery of demon worship to Jesus Christ. After mastering the difficult Lesu language, he developed his own Fraser script and translated the scriptures into the tribal dialect. By 1916, there was a real move of the Spirit among the Lasu. He'd been there for years. Resulting in, listen, 60,000 baptisms within only two years. And not immediately two years. He had been praying and seeking for a long time. And in, interesting, there was not a huge group of folks with him. He did much of his ministry on his own. The Lasu Church continued to grow and eventually became one of the largest tribal Christian bodies in the world. J.O. Fraser's success was not the result of his impressive talents or giant intellect. Mr. Fraser succeeded where others often fail because he had learned how to touch God through prayer. Isolated and hidden away behind the mountains, he was compelled to seek God for his every need. To know the real Fraser was... One needed to hear him in prayer, thinking probably like they heard Jesus pray. Prayer was the very breath of life to him, and in prayer he seemed to slip from time into eternity. For many of us, prayer is not a first choice, but a last resort. Fraser had learned out of sheer necessity to pray fervently and continuously. Frequently, the mountainside would witness the piercing, importunate pleadings of of this man who counted his prayer time not by minutes but by hours. Fraser was not a man who merely said prayers. He travailed in prayer. This is an Elijah type of a prayer moment where the pattern of his life was to take hold of things in God in such an amazing way. Now, what I loved about this man and what drew me to study him was how he saw the necessity for others to pray for him. And much of the biography that I've been reading has has been his uh, letters back to the prayer team in England who was praying for him. And I love this picture. Please own this picture with me. I think it speaks to us right now. This is from his letter back to those folks praying. He says, I cannot insist too strongly on my own helplessness among these people apart from the grace of God. Although I have now been 10 years in China and Lesu, I find myself able to do little or nothing apart from God's going before me and working among them. Without this, I feel like a man who has his boat grounded in shallow water. Pull or push as he may, he will not be able to make his boat move more than a few inches. But let the tide come in and lift his boat off the bottom then he will be able to move it as far as he pleases, quite easily and without friction. It is indeed necessary for me to go around among our lasso, preaching, teaching, exhorting, rebuking, but the amount of progress made thereby depends almost entirely on the state of the spiritual tide in the village, a condition which you can control upon your knees as well as I. Sometimes I feel that a village is grounded like that boat at low water. In such a case, you can no more get the people to hold together and strengthen each other than you could roll dry sand into a ball. They will be cold and unresponsive 
And weeks or even months of teaching will not do much for them. Their prayers are not answered as the power of the Holy Spirit is with them. I repeat, I feel powerless to help in such cases except to do all that is possible then commit them to God. Here was a man who understood that there is, there is a realm of prayer that all of us participate in in interceding for the things of God. That it, I love the picture that sort of bring the tide in. And all of a sudden, all that work. I mean, if you guys have ever, you've ever run aground somewhere with South Louisiana, this is good. If you've ever been in a boat and you run aground somewhere and the tide started to go out on you, you stayed too long in a fishing spot you thought was great and the tide starts to go out on you. And you try and pull that boat off of that thing. You ever do this? Whoo! You're in for some work, babe. But you know, when the tide comes up, all of a sudden, that same thrust of the pole that... That moved you that far? That same thrust just moved you eight feet. And you do it again and again. Listen, there are realms of ministry in the Spirit that are just like that whether it's the Lasso tribesmen or whether it's the Alpha meeting or whether it's youth ministry taking place here or whether it's covenant groups where people gather for fellowship and encouragement and pray for one another. Listen, you, do you realize that all the ministry things God calls us to do could be sitting at low tide and a lot of work and a lot of efforts being spent but not a lot of movements being done? Well, what's, what's going to make that difference? when the body of Christ takes up praying, like we're called to pray, and we begin to pray for God to move, and God begins to break into families, and begins to break into young people's lives, and into the pivot people's lives, and begins to touch mercy ministry, and people who were cold and unresponsive. Isn't that the word he used? Cold and unresponsive to invitation, or to care, or to ministry in their life. Cold and unresponsive, but then God begins to move. And the tide begins to come in. And some basket stuck on somebody's front door begins to be a vehicle. And in their heart, they say, I've got to go figure out what this is about. I've got to come. Somebody who can't seem to get their life together, even show up for a fellowship meeting, much less bring something of God with them, begins to feel the lift of the Spirit of God. And now they want to do those things. And they're eager to spend their life on those things. So how does that happen? It happens when the church prays. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote. I'm not going to put it up there. It's too long. But Charles Spurgeon took a man on a tour one day of his church and and he asked him, do you want to see the power center of the ministry? I'll just read that little part to you. Spurgeon asked and as he showed the man into a lower auditorium, he said, it is here that we get our power. For while I am preaching upstairs, Hundreds of my people are in this room praying. Is it any wonder that God blessed Spurgeon's preaching of the word? But Spurgeon's preaching went around the world. No one has had a ministry like this man had. It was published in multiple languages. Every week there was a stenographer there who would record his messages and they would literally put them in newspapers around the world. And thousands and thousands were coming to Christ as a result. But he was quick to recognize, do you know why that happens? Because hundreds of people are in the basement praying. Listen, that's still true for us today. It's still true about every aspect of ministry taking place here, guys. So here's what I want to appeal for. 
today. I want to appeal for a revitalization of the prayer force. I want to ask you in the next couple of weeks for you to strongly consider, is God calling you not just to pray? Everybody's called to pray. Everybody's called to intercede. Everybody should know something about fervent, effectual praying. But there would be some that would have seasons of their life where they would be called to intercession as a ministry. Same way that your covenant group leaders feel the weight of that ministry, where pastors feel the weight of that ministry. There'd be some who'd say, intercession, I feel the weight of that. I need, I need to respond. Now, I'm going to throw out a couple of thoughts here for you, and I want you to consider. Prayer force, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask folks to enlist. And we're going to have a meeting in the School of the Word in a few weeks to, to explain the details of this. And I hope many, many of you will come be a part. A six-month enlistment. You'd say that for the next six months, that area of ministry I'm going to be responsible for. We'll have some boot camp training, the prayer force, and the upcoming School of the Word classes, and some additional training throughout the, the six-month term. We're asking for 65, for a 65-member team that will be divided up into squads who pray on different days. 65. Now, why 65? Because there's about 650 of us that show up here on Sunday. I thought 10% would be a good number. There needs to be at least 10% of us who pray for what God's doing in the rest of our lives and through this church. We're going to ask you to commit to 30 minutes of intercession uh, at least two to three times a week. We'll explain all that in more detail. I ask you to maintain your daily prayer life in fighting shape. I ask you to attend the corporate prayer gatherings on Sunday morning from 8 to 8.40. I ask you to make prayer ministry a priority and not an option in your life. Now, I hope and I'm praying and I'm asking God for at least 65 people. There would be many folks who you've been wondering, yeah, I, mean, I want to be involved more, I want to do something. I want to... Hey, get involved in this. It's not as though there's something better than this out there. Well, I'm just part of the prayer team. No, you're not just part of the prayer team. If prayer is everything we've just described, if prayer is everything, everything we've been studying the last few weeks, then, then you're a part of the essential thrusting open of the door of whatever it is that God wants to do around here. And if we don't have any doormen, we might have a lot of busy ministers around here, but it's going to be like low tide. Right, let me just walk through this real quickly, and I'm going to shut up. Last thing in your outline, it says, what can I do to revitalize my prayer life? Take this home with you and look at it. First, take the time to pray. I didn't align the word take. I didn't put the word make time to pray because in reality, the only place you're going to find it, you can't create time. If you could make time, that'd be great. All you can do is take it away from something else. If you're not prepared to do that, then next week we'll have this conversation again and the week after that we'll have this conversation again and you'll be trying to figure out, I don't know why my prayer life isn't changing. Because you won't take the time away from something else. Take it from something else. The five to seven minute prayer life, stop calling that prayer. Don't do that anymore. It may be better than nothing, but it is doing harm to you ever developing a prayer life that looks biblical. So if you if you're, think you're sustaining your life on five to seven minutes every once in a while, you actually think you're praying. It'd be better for you to be convinced you're not praying. Because there's a whole world of prayer that you have never experienced. And you need to. You can have five to seven minute prayer. Here's permission. You can have five to seven minute prayer life only when you are practicing effectual fervent praying. Does this mean we can't ever pray five to seven minutes? Well, sure, you can pray 30 seconds. Only after you have developed other aspects of your prayer life so that you are praying without ceasing as the Bible describes. Set aside time for prayer the same way you do for exercise or eating or watching a favorite TV show. Plan on having times of prayer that are not convenient 
or boxed in by other things are mired in spontaneous disorganization. How do you like that phrase? How many of us that describes our prayer life? We walk in, we're unorganized, and, it's, and the whole meeting is just totally spontaneous with God. Just whatever comes to mind. I got, I got no approach here. I haven't thought about anything. I'm not carrying any burdens into my prayer closet. I haven't been thinking through the day, sensitive to the Spirit of God, that, that when I pray tonight, this is going to be in the list. Uh, none of that. Just spontaneity. Just walking in. We're charismatic, after all. Just going to be led by the Spirit. And, and if you look in the rearview mirror, you will find well-worn ruts that you are in. Won't you? Your spontaneity has become highly predictable. You pray about the same things over and over and over again in the same way over and over, and you're bored. (laughs) So you might need to actually plan to pray and bring some thought with you. Get out of the rut. We'll give you some more details on that next week. Pursue praying until you pray. Pursue that. And not just praying until your clock or your checklist releases you. Pursue that dynamic where you pray until you have a sense from God. This is where I needed to get in prayer. Do you ever experience the burden of God when you pray? Is there any heat or intensity in your prayers? Do you ever experience a sense of owning the answer by faith, even before you ever see it? And God, he's given it to you in your heart and you know, I've got this thing now. And you've prayed it to that point. Do you ever make room to just wait on God? Just open-ended. God, I'm just here for you. Release me when you're done. Lastly, don't just pray. Study the practice of prayer. And don't just study on prayer, but pray. All right, if we want to get out of a rut in Lakeview Christian Center, we are in need of revitalizing our prayer lives. Please look at that. Please take some time this week to reconsider how you're going to pray and begin to ask yourself, is God calling you to be a part of the prayer force? Be a part of a prayer ministry team that's going to be vitally connected to everything God's calling us to do. Now listen, all of us are called to prayer. This isn't a 65-person message. All of us are called to prayer. But there are some here who are called to extraordinary prayer. Let's stand up together. Lord, I thank you that as as we were worshiping today, Lord, you, you encouraged us with words. You said for us to ask you for a, a spirit of supplication, to ask you for that. Lord, I know in my own strength, and each of us should know in our own strength, but we do not have it in ourselves to accomplish what we've just looked at. So we do, we do ask you, Lord, pour out on us a spirit of prayer in our midst. God, pour out and awaken in our own souls the pursuit of you, the desire for you, the passion for you, the burden and weight of the kingdom of God that drives us to you. God, stir our lives. Holy Spirit, write upon our hearts these things compel us, and we take you at your word that you would cause us to walk in your commands. God, we're asking you to do what you promised that you would do. You said you'd give us your spirit. You said you'd give us these desires in our hearts. God, we are asking for them today. 
God, we take your word and we bring it back to you. And we ask today, Lord, make us to be a praying people. Make us to be a people who are convinced that there is power in our prayers. God, convince us that prayer changes things. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes what we're after in life. And prayer changes how we pray. God, I pray that you make us a people who are passionate about prayer. God, I pray that there's 65 people here this morning and in the next couple of weeks who are hearing you call them. Specifically, God, you're putting your hand upon them. You're giving them a vision and a desire and a delight in pursuing you in prayer. And they're beginning to experience faith for all that you would do in our midst as you bring the tide in in our midst and the Spirit begins to move and things that we're doing begin to bear fruit in people's lives in incredible ways, God. You want to do that. God, I believe that there are some here I just had the sense praying the other night for you guys. And there was a sense of a word that was given earlier about those who are new believers, new in the faith. How God's calling you to himself. God's calling you to come be with him. And I had the sense that there would be some here. And that word was an encouragement to you that you're not to set aside the fact that you're new. And I had a sense the other night in praying that I believe that there would be some who are new here. That God would give you a vision for prayer that far eclipses many of our visions for prayer. Many of us who have been in the faith for a while. Many of us who have unfortunately through our own experience downgraded prayer to something man-sized. But yet you would be in a posture that God in this season for this church has brought you here that you would have a spiritual naiveness, that you simply would take God at his word and you would approach this issue through a whole different avenue and God would raise up a number of you, a number of you who are young in the faith, a number of you who are new in the kingdom of God. God would raise up your life to be a mighty intercessor before his throne. You believe in God over and over and over again and standing before him and continuing in his presence, persevering full of faith to see the kingdom of God coming. For God has put it in your heart to do that. So if you are, you are here this morning, you are new, God's not looking for you to have some PhD understanding. He's just looking for your heart to turn toward him. And he'll begin to fill you. He'll begin to burden you. He'll begin to give you prayers. He'll begin to lead you. You're going to go somewhere in God. God, I thank you for those people that are here. I thank you for the amazing thought, Lord, that some of you have brought to this very hour. You've brought them here for this very hour to pray in a new way, God, that some of us have had a hard time breaking into. But there would be some here who you would give grace to them by faith to break into a new realm of praying, God, with power and influence and persuasion in things of the kingdom of God. Lord, bring a new day for us. 